<clears throat> Daniel chapter 9 is where we've got to in the book of Daniel. It's on page 895 if you're using one of the church Bibles. And I'm going to hand over to Tom after I've read the first 19 verses. Let's just pray with God's word open before us. We thank you for causing your word not just to be revealed in the first place to prophets and others, but to be written down for our benefit, uh, we on whom the fulfillment of the ages have now come. You had us in mind when these words were written, and we pray, gracious God, that you'd speak afresh through them to us tonight. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read from verse 1 of Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God, and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we're covered with shame, the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what's been done to Jerusalem, just as it's written in the law of Moses. All this disaster has come on us Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, We have sinned, we've done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors 
have made Jerusalem your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Thank you, Simon. Well, rest assured, even though it's two sermons, it's really one sermon with a break in between, and hopefully not the length of two sermons. Uh, Tonight, I want to help us to learn how to turn back to God. Um, When Jesus first began his ministry, he said, the time is near, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. The call to repent, the call to turn back to God, is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Martin Luther said that the Christian life is one of daily repentance, of daily turning back to God. And so whether you are somebody who has never turned back to God before or whether you are somebody who has been a Christian all your life, we are all called to daily turn back to God. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight as we read this confession from Daniel. How can we turn back to God? I'm not sure where you're at tonight in your relationship with God. Perhaps there is a particular sin that is weighing very heavily on you, whether it's one big thing that you have done that you can't seem to get past in your mind or a regular sin that you cannot overcome, that you know that you need to turn back to God. Or maybe you don't feel torn up inside, maybe you feel very dull and very cold and very distant from God, going through the motions, not really knowing where that first love went, you too need to turn back to God. Or maybe you think, I'm fine, in which case you need the word of God to shine that light and expose that sin to show that you too need to turn back to God. We all need to turn back to God daily. And so we were going to look at this confession from Daniel to learn how. Now, a little bit of context to help us understand why Daniel is praying this prayer. So, as we hopefully know from the book of Daniel so far, Daniel is in Babylon and Israel, his nation, are under the judgment of God. And the way that God has judged them, the way that God has punished them, is by bringing them into exile. They no longer live in the land. They no longer live in Jerusalem. Instead, God has sent this superpower, Babylon, to conquer the southern kingdom. And he takes a bunch of Israelites out of Israel back to Babylon. And so now they are exiles, refugees in Babylon. 
And this is God's judgment on his people because they had sinned. They had turned away from God. They had rejected their God and worshipped idols. They had lived in a way completely contrary to how God wanted them to live, living like the nations rather than living as God's holy people. And God warned them again and again and again through his prophets what would happen if they do not turn back to him and they don't turn back. And so they are now under the judgment of God in exile in Babylon. And Daniel is one of these Israelites there in exile in Babylon under the judgment of God because the nation has turned away from God. But here in Daniel 9, we're told that something amazing has happened, something incredible. One of those moments in history where truly everything seems to change. We are told that Darius, the son of Xerxes, is made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. And what this means is, is that Babylon, the great superpower of the Near East, has been conquered. And it's amazing. Uh, and, and this is a historical event. This, this really happened. You can uh, learn about it in, in history books. In fact, Tom Holland has a fantastic book, if you're interested, uh, called Persian Fire, which is very interesting and can talk all about this. But the Babylonian Empire, almost overnight is conquered by the Persians. And Darius, also known as Cyrus, uh, becomes ruler over Babylon. And for Daniel, this is an amazing moment. Because as this monumental geopolitical shift occurs, Daniel pulls out his Bible. And he reads Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says that the desolation of Jerusalem, what's happened to Jerusalem, the exile, would last 70 years. And wouldn't you know it, they're coming up on 70 years. And so Daniel is seeing all these huge things happening around him in the world and he thinks, wait a minute, is God about to do something here? Is God about to bring us back into the land? Is this the moment where we will be saved. And so he prays this prayer of confession on behalf of Israel, seeking to turn back to God, that they might be forgiven for their sin and brought back into the land. Now let's have a look at this confession. There are three uh, main parts that we can break this confession up into. First of all, Daniel confesses his and his nation's sin. Secondly, he acknowledges the judgment that they deserve. And thirdly, he cries out for mercy. So first of all, he confesses their sin. Have a look at verses 5 and 6. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. I think these verses are a powerful explanation of what sin is, a powerful picture of what sin looks like. We've done wrong. 
We haven't done what you have called us to do, God. We've broken your laws and we've treated people in a way that you don't want us to. We've lied, we've cheated, we've stolen, we've gossiped, we've manipulated, we've hurt people, we've bullied people, we've injured people, we've lusted after people. We have sinned. We have done wrong. But Daniel knows that sin is not just a surface problem. He goes deeper. We are wicked. We have been wicked. Our hearts are wicked and we have rebelled. You see, sin is not just a laundry list of all the bad things that you've done. It's actually about how you have treated God. And when we sin, we are rebelling against God. God is in charge. He is the king. And when we sin, we say to God, I don't want you to be in charge of my life anymore. I'm going to live life my own way instead. And we go our own way. We take the crown off God's head and we place it on our own. Sin is rebellion. And more than that, sin is not listening to God's word. We've not listened to your servants, the prophet, who spoke in your name. When we sin, we listen to our own evil desires in our heart. We listen to the world around us. We listen to the devil, but we don't listen to God. We ignore him. We don't believe him when he tells us what he knows is best for us. We think he's holding out on us. And we believe the devil's lies when we don't accept the consequences that God warns for our sin. This is a a deep picture of sin. And this is the first step to turning back to God. You need to confess your sin. You need to get real with God. The Bible says that when God comes to us, when Jesus came into the world, the light shone and there were two possible reactions. Some people ran away from the light into the darkness. Why? Because they were scared that their evil deeds would be exposed. But others came into the light so that what God would do through them would be revealed and God would be praised. And so we need to not be scared of being exposed before God. We need to stop covering our sin and let God cover our sin with forgiveness instead. We need to come to God. Don't hide your sin. Confess it. I'm a serial yo-yo dieter. Um, largely dependent on my stress levels is where, where the yo-yo is at the time. And when things are going bad, the one thing I hate more than anything else are the scales. I don't want to see them. I don't want to go near them. I don't want anything to do with them because they show me the truth. But we need to hear the truth. We need to see where we're at. We need to confess our sins to God. That's the first thing. Secondly, acknowledge that you deserve judgment. Now, to understand what Daniel is saying here, we need to understand exactly the judgment that Israel was under. When Israel first went on the plains of Moab, ready to go into Israel, enter the land for the first time, Moses sat them down and said, okay, hold on. Before you go in, you need to understand what this relationship with God is going to look like. If you obey him, you will be blessed in the land and things will go well. But if you disobey him, you will be cursed and you will be kicked out of the land. 
And that, that helps us to understand what Daniel is saying in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. See, God set the terms, they broke the terms, and so they were under judgment. The amazing thing is, is that Daniel doesn't try to, doesn't try to you know, complain or answer back to God and say, yeah, but God, what about this? Oh, but God, isn't that unfair? But God, that seems really harsh. You don't want to do that to Israel, surely. No, Daniel owns that they are the ones who have done the wrong thing. And he says something truly remarkable. Have a look at verse 14. This is certainly not something you hear many people say about God today. Verse 14, the Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. I feel like that is the complete opposite of how most people think about God. See, most people think, well, God is good. He's a good God. And therefore, he wouldn't punish me. Isn't that how most people think? He's a good God. He's a great God. And a good God would never punish. But that's almost the, that's, that is the opposite of what Daniel says here. He says, God has punished. Why? For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Because God is a good God, he didn't hesitate to bring disaster on us. That's a hard thing for us to to wrap our mind around, isn't it? And yet it actually makes perfect sense because a good God does not let sin go unpunished. Just like a good judge does not let a criminal get off free with a crime, a good God does not allow sin to go unpunished. It is because of God's goodness, because of his goodness, that we are punished for our sin. Notice what Daniel does. He doesn't put the blame on God. He puts the blame on us. You did not hesitate, God, for you're righteous, yet we have not obeyed. It's our fault. We're the ones deserving of judgment. And friends, we need to do this too when we turn back to God. There's no excuses. There's no yeah, buts. There is a simple recognition, God, I've sinned and I do deserve to be punished. You are a righteous, holy God that I've offended and I don't deserve anything other than the judgment that is in store for me, God. Now, that's a scary thing to say, isn't it? Because we don't want that judgment. <laughs> that's, that's why we, we pretend that God doesn't judge, because we don't want it. But there is a better way. Because once we have finally owned up not only to our sin, but to the fact that we deserve judgment, the next step is that we cry out for mercy. And this is what Daniel does from verse 15 onwards. Let me read to you just verses 18 and 19. Give ear our God and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, 
but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act for your sake, my God. Do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. What do you do when all you have is your sin before God? The only thing you can do, which is to cry out for mercy. How does the world appeal to God? It appeals to its righteousness. God, accept me. God, love me. God, do this for me because... Of what I have done. Because I'm a good person. Because I go to TNG almost every week. That's pretty good, God. God, accept me because I'm kind to most people around me. God, love me because I give to charity. God, be on my side. Because I'm not like all those other bad people out there. I post about social justice issues from time to time. I'm a good person, God. It's not what Daniel says, is it? He says the opposite. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. The world looks at themselves to justify themselves before God. What do we do once we recognise our sin? We don't look at ourselves. There's nothing to see there. We look at God and we see his mercy. That's the only hope I have. The only hope I have is that God is a good, loving, merciful God, a kind God who cares deeply about me. You know the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go to the temple to pray. What does the Pharisee do? He focuses on himself, his own righteousness. Lord, look at all the good things I've done. I give uh, a tenth of everything I've done. I fast all the time. I'm not like that tax collector. What does the tax collector do? Doesn't even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the only thing, only thing we can appeal to once we recognise our sin is God's Great mercy that is greater than even our sin. A mercy, of course, that we see as he sends his son to die for us. We're going to pause there and get to the really confusing bit after. Because I want to take some time now for us on our own to come before God. So we won't take long couple of minutes, but I want you to work through with God in your own life those three steps there, confessing your sin to God, acknowledging that you deserve judgment, and crying out for mercy. Can we take a few minutes to do that, just on our own, and we'll come back together. On Daniel 9 and verses 20 to 27. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, 
While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who came will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Well, that's pretty straightforward. I don't think I need to say much on that. My favourite bit is, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding, which I feel good for him. Um, (laughs) The rest of us might struggle. It's a confusing, I don't know, maybe it wasn't for you, but for me, it, it, uh, it, it led to a lot of scratching my head trying to work out what's going on. Now, we won't spend too long on this, don't worry, But I actually thought this is not a bad exercise for us in what to do with really tricky passages. What do you do when you just get to that bit in the Bible where you're like, what is that about? That is so weird, so strange, so foreign to me. I have no idea what's going on. Now, I'm not going to try and give you all the answers. I don't have all the answers for you tonight, so I'm sorry about that. But what do we do when we come to a tricky passage? Well, I think a helpful place to start is to think like you do when you're doing a crossword puzzle. I don't know if you like crossword puzzles. I love crossword puzzles. When I do a crossword puzzle and I come to a clue that I have no idea about, I don't stay on it for the next day trying to work it out. I move on. I move on to the next clue and the next clue, and I work out what I do know first. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? You work out what you do know, and often, once you work out what you do know in a crossword and you put those words in, it actually gives you a couple of clues as to what you don't know as well, and then you can put them in as well. Same idea when you're reading the Bible. When you come to a confusing passage, 
take a breath and say, well, well, what do I know from this passage? What is it saying that I can take out of this? So let's start with that. The first thing that you can definitely see from this passage is that God has heard Daniel's prayer. I mean, it's quite remarkable, isn't it, what what Gabriel says. Uh, he, He says to me, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out. That is quite remarkable, isn't it? God hears when you pray. If you were praying to God just before, you weren't just praying to yourself or praying to the wall or praying to the pew in front of you. You are praying to a God who is alive and who hears you. He listened to that prayer. He responds to that prayer. That's the first thing. God hears. And the second thing is that God does promise forgiveness. If nothing else that we can get out of this, uh, we certainly get that from the vision, don't we? I think verse 24 is helpful there. Leaving aside the 77s for a second, what, what do we see coming? An end to sin. Atonement for wickedness. Everlasting righteousness. So, What is being promised here, if we put aside some of the trickier details to start with, is forgiveness. God is saying, I've heard your prayer asking to be forgiven for your sin, and I will forgive you. Now that is amazing, isn't it? Here is a God who hears and who forgives And if nothing else that we take out of that passage, that is really helpful, isn't it? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It is useful for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. And it prepares us, makes us ready for salvation. And so this does do that. This readies us for salvation as we know that God hears and he forgives. I think there's one other thing that we, we can take out of this though maybe it's a bit trickier to see at first, and that is that even though God promises forgiveness, it doesn't seem like it's going to come straight away. Do you see that? That there's a sense in which there is a vision that is given, there is a promise that is given, but there's this time period in between, this waiting that Daniel is going to have to wait for before they actually do come back and before Jerusalem truly is restored. And I think that can be helpful for us as well. Daniel's given the word. He's given the promise of forgiveness. But he must wait for the time of salvation. Okay, what's with the 70s and the 7s? What's that all about? There is a lot of people who have a lot of ideas on this. And I think the only thing that the commentators agree on is that people don't know. There is some suggestion that if you add up these time periods, uh, literally it's saying seven sevens, which normally would mean seven weeks um, or 70 weeks. Um, But that seems to not make much sense. When people add up the time period, they're like, nothing really that significant seems to happen at that point. I don't really understand why it would be 70 weeks. Uh, Other people say, well, the 77s are 70 blocks of seven years. And so they add that up. And if you kind of do some fancy footwork with that, you maybe get to the time of Antiochus, uh, which, which is centuries later, uh, who was another ruler who ruled over Israel and um, desecrated the temple. And so they say, oh, maybe that's the desolation, um, uh, the abomination that causes desolations, talking about Antiochus. And then if you go on the internet, you can find 
a lot more about, about a lot more theories on that. Please don't do that. Uh, it won't be helpful for you. And I want to say that I think there's, there's good reasons to, to, to look into this in more detail, but I think there is something really obvious as to, as to what this is... Um, sorry, just getting a bit of... Um, there we go. Um, the, I think it's really obvious what this is ultimately pointing to, and that is Jesus. I don't know if you picked that up when, um, when you were reading this, but that this seems to be pointing to Jesus. And I have to say, we need to make sure when we read the Bible that we read the Bible as Christians. That seems obvious. What do I mean by that? As Christians, we've read the back of the book. We've seen how it ends. Okay, we know what is to come. It's a little bit like when you do a jigsaw puzzle. If I have lots of puzzle analogies here. A jigsaw puzzle. Okay, we've seen the front of the box and we know what the picture is meant to look like. Okay, the picture is of Jesus dying on the cross to take away our sins so that we can be made right with God. We've seen the picture on the box. And so when we get to this part of the puzzle, and it's really tricky, we know, well, I'm not quite sure how it all fits together, but I know ultimately this is where it's pointing. I think that's something that a lot of commentators forget, that actually as Christians we know that the answer is ahead of us in Jesus. So I'm going to give you five minutes now before we finish up to... With, with the people around you, I want you to look at this passage. I want you to just chat about what do you see from this passage that seems to speak about Jesus coming and what he's coming to do? Hey, the passage that was read out, very quickly, rattle off anything that you see. Another way of putting it is, what does this passage teach us about what Jesus has come to do? It's another way you can think about this. Five minutes and then we'll finish. Go for it. Turn to the people next to you. Say hello again. Peter, you can come here and I'll chat to you if you want. Good on you. Yeah, actually, yeah, Peter, you join Josh's group. Go on. There you go, perfect.
One more minute. Let's uh, let's come back together. Would anyone like to share share what they uh, any any thoughts or words of prophecy? Joshua. Yes. Yes. Yes, fantastic. Thank you. And a mention of an anointed one. Does anyone know another word for anointed one? Another term that means anointed one? Oh, Topher. Sorry? Very good. King? Yes, it means king. A word that the Bible uses a lot that means anointed one. Messiah. Messiah. Christ. Right? Christ. That's anointed one is Christ or Messiah. Okay, so we've got a Christ. We've got a Messiah, an anointed one. That's going to be put to death. Very good. And a ruler. Yeah. Anything else we see? It does, doesn't it? Yes. Yep. Thank you. That's right. the, the temple seems to be done away, which, uh, you know, I, I think upon first hearing this, especially for Daniel, that would have sounded like a really bad thing. Um, that was one of the big issues of the exile. But yes, we do. We get this sense that the, the, the temple will be done away. Anything else? A new covenant. That's right. He will, he will um, confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Whatever the seven is. But, but, but the covenant, we know what a covenant is. Confirm the covenant. Absolutely, yep. What about verse 24? I feel like verse 24 just screams Jesus again and again and again. Who will put an end to sin? Anyone tell me? Jesus, well done. Who will atone for wickedness? Jesus, excellent. Who will bring in everlasting righteousness? Tricky one. Who will seal up vision and prophecy? Well done, Peter. Jesus, that's right. It's an end, and the, the final word is in Jesus. That's right. There you go. Good Sunday school answers. Jesus is always, always, always the right answer. There is a lot here to me that screams Jesus. Now, that's not to say that the details don't matter, but I really hope that we don't miss the wood for the trees here. That the promise of forgiveness is ultimately found in Jesus and in his death. This is how God answers Daniel's prayer. This is how God answers Daniel's confessions. Return to Israel is going to take a bit longer than he had hoped. And even when they do return, it's not going to be, that's not going to be the salvation. But rather it will be found in Jesus. We're going to finish now, but let me just say how we are not like Daniel and how we are like Daniel. We're not like Daniel because we're not Israel under judgment. We're under a new covenant, and if we mess up, it's, that's not it for us. We're not going to be sent off 
I don't know, into Russia or somewhere for, for, for 70 years or something like that. We're not under God's old covenant and we're not waiting for Jesus to come. He has come, hasn't he? So we're on the other side of salvation history in that sense. And yet, we are still very much like Daniel. Because as a world, we still do face judgment, don't we? We still are under the judgment of God for our sin. And so we need Daniel's prayer as much as he and Israel did. Crying out to God, confessing our sin, acknowledging that we deserve judgment, and crying out for mercy. We are still like Daniel in that Jesus says we too need to repent. And even though we look back at the cross now, we also, like Daniel, still must wait. We are in between the time between the cross and Jesus' return, and we wait for Jesus to come back to save us. And so like Daniel, in this vision, we've been given a word, a promise of salvation. It will come. It has come in Christ, and it will come when he returns. And so like Daniel, we now wait in faith for that. But most of all, we are like Daniel because we share in a truly merciful, wonderful God who would do this, who would send his son to die for us, to rescue us from this sin. Let me pray. Loving Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy. We pray for all of us tonight that we would have a life turning back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.